This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Tonight, I have a very fun reading for you to go to sleep to, um, because it's a book all about bread. Uh, it's not metaphorical. It literally is about the baking of bread. 
which is one of my favorite things to do. And this is a very old book uh, written in the early 1900s about bread. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good one to fall asleep to. And uh, before I get to the bedtime reading, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com. Susan Sevier, Lori, Costanza Santilli, Jan, Kimberly Prouty, Tika Laprieto, Samantha Rossiter, and Tina Porter. Thank you all so, so much for donating. It really, really means a lot. Thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know, um, the names that you just read are brand new supporters on Patreon.com, which is where you can go and um, get an ad-free version of the show, as well as uh, on the top of the Spotify page here, you see a little banner with a blue Sleepy logo where you can unlock all kinds of uh, ad-free episodes. So if you want to be a part of making this show, you can go do that or go straight to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate even a dollar a month. Uh, $2, again, gets you an ad-free version of Sleepy. $5 gets you access to our poetry feed. Uh, but even if you donate a dollar, I'll be so, so deeply grateful, and I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show, after you do. So again, if you want to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, uh, I have a really fun little bedtime story for you. Um, I'm just kind of looking through old collections of books that are in the public domain and thought, why limit myself to fiction or nonfiction right now? Why not look into some old cookbooks? And this is a uh, this is a cookbook, but it's also kind of a science of cooking book. Um, one of a long diatribe, in fact. Um, over 350 pages of information on bread baking. And it is literally called The Book of Bread by Owen Simmons. Um, it actually says that the book is uh, by Owen and Owen. So I think there are multiple Owens who uh, took part in the writing of this book. But it is delightful. Um, it's just really a truly uh, obsessive manifesto on all things bread. And I'm going to be reading from chapter 2, which is all about the flavor of bread. F-L-A-V-O-U-R, of course. As this was written in 1908. So... Um, let me know if you like uh, kind of diversions from our regular story times with books like this. Um, and without further ado, tonight, I hope you can sleep soundly too. The Book of Bread by Owen Simmons. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. 
The Book of Bread Section 2 The Good and Faulty Points of a Low Flavor Flavor can be defined as the quality of a substance which pleasantly affects the taste or smell. In speaking, however, of the flavor of a loaf of bread, one must consider something more than taste, such as can be conveyed by a condiment. One can hardly consider flavor apart from the freshness and moistness and the pleasantness and relish experienced during eating and the ease with which it's masticated or conduces to digestion. Further, when receiving bread at various times from almost all parts of the world, one has considerable difficulty in judging the flavor because of the various characteristics that are liked or disliked according to the district. Taking two extreme types, namely the long corridor sponge system of Scotland and the short off-hand doughs that are now becoming so popular. A Scotchman frequently says, and undoubtedly believes, that there is no bread in the world so sweet as that made from his, excessively long processed by Parisian barm. But when making such a statement, he cannot possibly have tasted bread from such a process as the four-hour system. Consumers, however, who are accustomed to the short process never fail to at once say that the long process low, which a Scotchman calls sweet, is undoubtedly sour. It is quite obvious that with the long process there must be some acid produced, and very much more in the short one. Acid cannot possibly be sweet, and will be liked or disliked according to the taste acquired for it. A person who has become accustomed to acids not liking similar foods without. Local customs and individual tastes, even of different people in the same district, are such important factors that one often feels it would be safer when judging a loaf of bread to entirely ignore the flavor. Yet the difficulty is that flavor is unquestionably a most important element of a loaf and as essential as the wheels to a coach. In order to taste the flavor of dough, it is necessary for it to be baked. But much information can be acquired concerning the flavor of flour before being made into dough. The aroma of flour is volatile and can to some extent be criticized when the latter is in its natural state. When heated, by even holding in the hand, the aroma or smell evaporates very much more quickly giving more indication of what it would be when baked. Still more information can be obtained by taking a series of flowers, some with which one has already been acquainted in the baked loaf, placing them in cups or glasses, pouring on them hot water, stirring and smelling immediately. Any oldness or characteristic will thus be immediately and rapidly given off and conveyed to the senses and can be accurately gauged by means of the known samples. When examining a loaf, much information concerning flavor can be ascertained by observing the physical signs denoting changes or added ingredients such as discussed elsewhere. Much information can also be obtained by the smell without even tasting, but it is always safest in a critical test, although not possible when judging several hundreds of loaves at the exhibitions, tea two or three pieces in order to neutralize any conflicting flavors 
that there might be in the mouth. Then proceed to carefully chew a piece, moving it about with the tongue and getting it onto the palate, noting carefully the readiness with which it breaks up in the mouth and the series of sensations that will be experienced during gradual swallowing. And carefully note the final taste as the piece is disappearing, and after the taste. Anyone noting the different sensations, thinking them out while eating, will, if accustomed to doing so, be surprised at the variations that are experienced, which will be unnoticed when eating in the ordinary way without closely studying. The differences in the sweetness and in the effort of chewing and of the roughness or smoothness, the tendency for the mass to divide itself or cling into a ball, rankness or otherwise, will be found to be very great. And after a little practice, one will be able to accurately judge a large number of loaves almost by instinct and without the same close application. The differences and peculiarities of the individual tastes of persons are undoubtedly the she anchor of a family business and the salvation of the small trader in close contact with his customer, as against the wholesale trader who must have more uniformity and neutrality for a large number of customers with whom he is not in contact. The intermediate party, the grocer, usually buying by the eye and not by the palate, the flavor of bread must depend on the degree of fermentation, on the quality of the flour, on the condition of the latter, and whether or no it has become contaminated accidentally, and on the amount and character of added substances. As a rule, the conditions that tend to produce a high percentage of gluten during the growing of the weed act against flavor. The conditions, however, that tend to high percentage of gluten usually result in a better maturity of the flour, and the more mature the flour is, the less its flavor will deteriorate on keeping. The best flavored flour, all other things equal, is the one that is freshest milled. Flour becomes stale and loses its flavor quicker than those who have not looked into the subject with credit. We recently tested this matter more by accident than by anything else having before thoroughly done so personally by two parcels of the same brand of flour that had arrived at an interval of about nine months. We gave out portions of them for domestic purposes, merely asking for the two to be used separately, for any characteristics to be noted. They are exactly the same make of flour, but we were told that one worked much drier took more water to mix it, and that the children, who had no intimation that they were being experimented on, immediately expressed their dislike to the flavor of some of the goods made. The older sample, which was nearly twelve months old, was more pronounced in flavor than the one that was nine months younger, although both were sound and had been properly kept. If distinctly noticeable as nasty at twelve months, it must have lost its fresh aroma long before. It is not everyone who has a critical palate, and some flowers keep better than others. And well that it is so, and sometimes flower used to be about twelve months old, especially when it has been a long time, perhaps all winter, coming, and then rests for good periods in granary and bakery over here. 
The way to see the important effect of fermentation on flavor is to compare a loaf raised naturally by the gas produced by yeast with the loaf that is raised by gas, which is prepared outside and then pumped in, as in some systems, or with a loaf that is raised by adding chemicals. The extent of the fermentation, rather than its rapidity, will be the ruling factor in the various differences that there will be between these two extremes. The presence of acid and change, as developed during fermentation, will strike the palate and give the sensation known as flavor in proportion as it is concealed or otherwise by other substances. For instance, salt not only has an effect on flavor by steadying fermentation, but has a flavor of its own, which, according to the amount added, makes itself apparent, or hides, or counteracts other effects. If added in normal quantities, which in the south of England would be about three pounds per sack, it is not tasted. If added in much smaller quantities, the bread would be insipid, unless some other flavor, such as acid, had been developed. If added in quantities of five or six pounds per sack, as customary in Scotland, the loaf will have a distinctly salt taste unless, on the other hand, it should be largely covered by an excess of acid, often produced by long processes. In exactly the same way, it is possible to add commercial vinegar, or acetic acid, in certain small proportions that it cannot be tasted. Although not tasted, its presence must counteract some of the natural sweetness of the flour, which otherwise would convey, by means of the blade, the sensation known as good flavor. Much importance is placed by some people on the kind of yeast used, but on the same principle as the salt and vinegar, the yeast is not added in sufficient quantity to give a direct flavor of its own. In fact, any flavor is chiefly due to the amount of fermentation that the yeast is allowed, by time or heat, to produce. When the system of straight doughs first came into vogue with large quantities of yeast, it was frequently remarked by those who were counseled to use it that such large quantities of yeast would taste, and it was frequently futile for the author to point out the fallacy of such a statement. The indisputable proof, by the contrary, however, is given by the fact that bread is frequently made for special purposes with even five pounds of yeast added to the sack and has no yeasty taste whatever when properly managed. In fact, not nearly so much of this so-called yeasty taste as in the case of very much less yeast under those conditions, as, for instance, with a small quantity worked a long time. If another proof were wanting, it is only necessary to calculate how much the customary one ounce or two ounces of yeast to a quart of liquor when making small batches of buns or fancy bread, would be to the sack, noting the absence of the taste of yeast. The difference between the different so-called sorts of yeast, as used in commerce, such as brewers, patent, and distillers, is chiefly their degree of concentration, and the condition of fermentation necessary to suit them. In the case of brewers, however, there is usually present a very strong decoction of hops and other matters, which are quite distinct from the yeast itself, 
and which are sufficiently strong to make themselves noticeable. A similar bitter taste to that obtained from brewer's yeast that has not been well washed or purified is sometimes noticed in case of continental or other compressed or dry yeasts when they have deteriorated during keeping or undergone a partial decomposition known as softening. Some people are so wedded to the idea of brewer's yeast making good flavored bread that they cannot conceive of anything to be contrary. It would, however, be just as reasonable to suppose that good meat never decomposes or good fruit never becomes rotten. Speaking of fruit reminds one that the degree of flavor in bread is just as varying in its appreciation as different sorts of fruit, many of which require an acquired taste before being valued. And personally, this has been particularly so with other foods, such as tomatoes. The addition of milk, sugar, lard, malt extract, glucose, and kindred substances must, like salt and other ingredients mentioned, affect according to their proportion and the stage of fermentation at which they are added. Some of them are directly fermentable by yeast, and if added at early stages are consumed before the loaf is baked. The flavor of a loaf can sometimes be judged by physical signs that tell the amount of fermentation and the degree of change in the flour, but it is not always so. We have had loaves to examine that have been the picture of health, evidently made from the best flour in the best possible manner as regards to its degree of change, but the flavor was distinctly bad and surprising. It was afterwards discovered that the ferment, or prior stage in which practically no flour had been placed, had been allowed to stand a very long time under bad conditions. It had thereby developed bad flavors, which, like an excess of vinegar, were not afterwards hidden when added to the main batch. If the bad flavors or sourness developed in the prior stages, such as in the above ferment, be not in excess, they can oftentimes afterwards be counteracted so as not to be noticed in the loaf. A good instance of this is in the case of leaven bread, as made on the continent. The piece of leaven, which leaveneth the whole lump, is left over from the previous day's baking, and is absolutely sour. This is mixed by gradual stages with the fresh flour, which being in such large proportions to the original leaven, hides the sourness and makes good, palatable bread. The same thing is seen in this country when a sponge has been overripe and is largely counteracted by the sweetness of the flour which is used for the dough stage. Any sourness, moreover, would be very much less noticed if the dough were made larger than originally intended. That is, if the dough were as it is called, stretched, because the original order of bread required was subsequently increased. In the same way where one's circumstances make one suppose that a long sponge is necessary, it is best to have this sponge as small as possible if one wants good flavored bread. Under the heading of crust, dryness, and baking, we have referred at length to the varying degrees of a quick oven. 
Shorter baking and a good heat will have a considerable effect on the flavor, especially in driving off the stale gases, products or sourness that would have been present in the dough, according to its treatment. The degree of baking will have very much more effect on the loaf than the fuel with which the oven is heated. There is, however, a prejudice in flavor of wood, especially when burned on the sole of the oven, as in several country districts, particularly in Germany and other parts of the continent. Nevertheless, although wood is as cheap as ever, and coal and coke during the last few years have been dearer, one finds from personally traversing the country that wood fire ovens are giving place to externally heated ones, especially of the steam pipe kind. A loaf of bread, like flour, is particularly absorbent of flavors or aromas with which it comes into contact, but while in the oven, as has already been shown, moisture, alcohol, and gases are being driven off. It is therefore difficult to see how a loaf can absorb anything at the same time as it is exuding. Nevertheless, there was recently a case in France where a poisoning of certain people by the bread was traced to the fact that the oven had been heated with old and painted wood obtained from some demolished houses. And further, there is now an edict to prohibit, for ovens, the use of such painted wood or anything that can be possibly contaminated. Whatever may be said in the contrary, and we are fully aware of what has been said on this subject, there is undoubtedly a considerable difference in the flavor of different flowers, not only according to the characteristics of the wheats, but also according to the way in which they have been milled. If an analysis be made of the moisture that has evaporated during milling, as might happen when the wheats had not been in good condition or had sweated, there will be found therein phosphates and various volatile oils of characteristic flavors. The Hungarians claim that by carrying the intermediate products of milling by hand instead of by greater use of elevators, as in general in this country, that they thus preserve some of these volatile oils. In old stone mills, undoubtedly, heating the germ by friction during milling produced an aroma that permeated the whole flour. We can now get a similar effect in the same way by taking separated germ, heating it, and passing its fumes through flour that was not milled at the same time. As an instance of the characteristic sweetness and nice flavor of a freshly ground flour from a nice selection of wheat in this country, as against those from harsher wheats or those taking months to arrive, it may be mentioned that it has come under our personal observation that mice are great discriminators in this respect. We know a case where they consistently always elected to eat into a certain grade of flour in a baker's law. They never touched anything else when that grade was there, and they always attacked it sooner after its arrival than they did any other. The same mill which was noted for its specialite in flavor, also supplied another grade similar to it, but not so choice or special in flavor. When the two arrived together, the first name was always attacked first. When that was out of stock, but not before, the mice attacked the other grade from the same mill, and afterwards the others. 
They so persistently attacked these two flowers, and especially the first, in preference to all other grades and law, that the baker frequently refused to order large quantities, unless he was going to use them rapidly, solely on this account. Absolute fact. The absorbing character of flour has already been referred to, and we have had many cases of tainted flour come under our notice. We know of a cargo of Vienna flour that was rejected because it was contaminated by the smell of oranges. We know of other flour that had had a most objectionable smell and baffled all attempts at finding out what it was for a long time. It afterwards transpired that the flour had been made from wheat that had been shipped in a vessel that some years before had carried guano manure. Unless one could personally vouch for such instances, they would seem incredible. We know of cases where, in a consignment by railway, of only a few tons of flour, all milled together, and all railed in the same truck, some of the consignment was considered unusable by one customer out of several who had flour out of the same consignment whereas no one else noticed anything unusual. This had been caused by the flower being covered by a newly dressed tarpaulin, and a few bags on top that the sheet touched absorbed the smell. We know of cases of paraffin contamination through flour being put in a truck that some time before carried the oil. It is not the contact of the oil but merely the smell arising from the dry floor of the truck and permeating the sack. New sacks will often convey a smell and are therefore often filled with wheat uffles before being filled with flour. But the curious thing is, perhaps that such contamination, like a plague of red ants in bakeries, disappears almost as rapidly as it comes. Where it is only a dry contamination, such as from the mere effluvia of the dress sheet or the dry floor, there is no need to worry or to destroy the goods, and they are worth keeping at a small discount. The smell soon disappears, and in proof of this, we have known many cases of such rejected flour being used by another man without the package being changed, or anything whatsoever done to the consignment and without the slightest indication that anything had even been wrong, even in cases where the new recipient had been told that the flower had been tainted or rejected by others. Flower that, in underground places, has come in contact with the worst of water has been all right inside, if shot from the sack before becoming musty. We know of shipwrecked cargoes of Vienna and other flower that have return handsome profits to the buyers because others were afraid of the supposed excessive damage. For the first week or two that sacks of flour stand in water, it seems that the soakage into the sacks is to the extent of about one inch per week. If the wheat has got thoroughly wet, causing the interior to become unsound, the damage is, of course, permanent, but not so if merely the outside or the bran has become wet. In modern mills, wheat is frequently passed through water or washed for purposes of cleaning, and also occasionally damp for purposes of easier milling. 
if the sacks of flour had been packed in a truck or on wet straw, or the latter has afterwards got wet, any smell or dampness from the straw will quickly evaporate if suitably stored, and particularly during baking. Many instances of this have been afforded by the fact that where one baker has complained of a strawy smell, the flour has been removed to another and found to be thoroughly desirable. Bad flavors often evaporate in exactly the same way as the good flavors of fresh milled flours do during storage. Color Although color is so much discussed in connection with bread, few who place so much importance upon it stop to inquire as to what color really is. It should be defined as property inherent in light, or the condition in which it is transmitted, which gives to bodies different appearances to the eye. That is, it is merely its sensation caused by the rays of light. Color, then, is a sensation carried by the means of the eye to the brain rather than anything actual and varies according to the conditions under which it is transmitted. For instance, the same thing has a different appearance to different people which is well known in the case of color blindness and also according to the surroundings, as in the case of flour on blue or white paper and also according to the amount or character of the light such as is the case between daylight and artificial light. The finer flour is dressed or ground, the more the globules are open to the light and the more complete the refraction, conveying to the brain by means of the eye purer or whiter light. This gives what we call better color, although of course in reality white is the absence of color or no color at all. In the same way, two loaves of bread from the same dough and bake side by side, and therefore substantially the same, will sometimes be considered of different color, one looking whiter than the other. The one, as will often be noticed in a tin loaf, as compared with a crumbly loaf, by proving more has become more porous than the other, whereby the more porous one, by absorbing more of rays of light, appears to be the darker. On the other hand, a more silky loaf sometimes appears to be of better color than it really is, according to the position in which it is held during examination. The color of a flower depends on the percentage of its constituents. The whiteness is the result of starch, which is the largest portion of the flower, and depends on the degree of refinement and removal of dirt. Although whiteness is often spoken of as good color, the good color commands high price. There can be an excess of starch, dead white flour being of worse value for bread-making purposes than a flour possessing a yellow cast. The whiteness can be obtained by adding highly refined starch from some other cereal, such as corn flour, and can be obtained for less money. Flour made from good red wheat would be better than that made from a common white. If flour be too highly refined, it will be approaching too near a pure starch, thereby losing the bulk giving and moisture retaining characteristic of gluten and the bloom characteristic of sugar. 
The presence of yellow indicates the presence of good class gluten freed from coarser portions. The patents of the flower will be yellow, but the lower grade, although sometimes containing a higher percentage of gluten, would be browner because of coming from nearer the bram and containing more impurities. The middle skin of wheat contains most of the coloring matter of the bran, but the inner layer contains some of the brown that is ground up in low-grade flowers. The germ of wheat, which in modern flowers is practically absent, is yellow, and it or its oil would, of course, have some effect were present. The whitest flower is usually from the center of the berry, and the white can usually be taken to represent flour either strong, wheat, highly refined, and not so much strength left in it, or else flour from a soft wheat pour and gluten. Yellow represents quality, and brown would represent strength of lower character, while gray would be poor. The changes in color of flour would be most during the first fortnight after milling. After that, the change would be very slow. It is the yellow that would evaporate quickest, becoming bleached in proportion as it was exposed to light and air. These various tints can be seen when the flour is in a dry and natural state, though when pressed on a board and dipped in water, the differences are very much more acute. Various changes occur during drying and the flowers can be best compared when they have been allowed to become again thoroughly dry by natural evaporation. When some flowers are thus pressed and wetted up together, much information concerning their general commercial value can be obtained. Considerable experience, however, is necessary in order to gauge the value that can be placed on the various tints according to their behavior during bread making. Here, very particularly, it will be seen that the whitest flour is not always the best bread maker. The safest way is always to test the flour concerning which one wants to get information at the same time as the other leading types with which one might be acquainted. Types vary considerably from year to year, and therefore any attempt to standardize them is very often misleading. It is very popularly supposed that fermentation always increases the color of the bread, but the fermentation can darken as well as bleach. In the case of the scotch process, which is usually conducted with a considerable amount of care for a long period, bleaching or whiteness is particularly noticeable. In the case, however, of long periods of fermentation with less precautions, not only is the yellow destroyed, but a dullness and darkness is produced, just as in the case when a dough from a strong or low-grade flour is immature. A piece of dough during the process of being made into loaves will often become darker on the exterior, if not covered up, and then will be seen in the form of streaks when turned inside the process of molding. The effect of time and fermentation on color, both of crumb and crust, can be settled beyond dispute by making a dough, cutting off pieces at each hour over a long range of time, and baking and noting separately. The color of bread is also affected by the ingredients that are added. 
Brewer's yeast, with its attendant impurities, and potatoes with their dirt, will darken, while scalded flour will whiten. Occasionally, there are quite foreign colors found in bread, such, for instance, as red spots, known as bleeding bread, which are attributed to a very small organism with a very long name. They might be due to an insect or mold on the grain which is too small to be removed during milling and the small amount of color present in the dry state spreads considerably on being wetted. The collaboration does not seem likely to be due to anything that has got in during bread making. We have occasionally found violet patches in the dough which have been less noticeable when in the low. We have found this repeatedly to be present when the wheat contained garlic, and although this is no direct evidence of garlic being the cause, or of the cause being different in the case of the red spots mentioned above, it seems to be more usually present when garlic is than otherwise. On one occasion, a greenish-blue spot was noticed in the crumb, and after considerable difficulty, it was found to be caused by a piece of colored string, the dye of which had spread. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.